you're new with us, uh, we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul started a church in Corinth, and uh, a little over 10 years later, writes this letter to them. It's, uh, he has a very complicated relationship with this church, uh, and one of the major problems uh, that he's dealing with, we're looking at today, and that is uh, false teachers that uh, crept into this young church, this gullible church, and is creating great problems. And so Paul here is having to defend himself, and in so doing is defending the gospel, and is in doing so is trying to defend the church that he loves so well from these, these theological predators. And so it's a good word for us about the need for discernment uh, and the need to preach the real Jesus. And so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we uh, jump in together. Father, we pray that you would come now and open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, throughout the years, as many of you know, cults have preached another Jesus. And many people around the world will tell you that they, quote, believe in Jesus. But we have to follow that up with the question, which one? The Jesus of biblical revelation or the Jesus of one's personal imagination? There are many views of Jesus that are inconsistent with the Bible, inconsistent with orthodoxy, inconsistent with the creed we just confessed. Sun Moon teaches that Jesus was divine but not God. And the second Adam, but only partially fulfilled his mission, and therefore Moon is to complete it for him. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, wrote that Jesus was a divine being, but only appeared to have a body. Charles Taz Russell, founder of Jehovah Witnesses, taught that the pre-incarnate Jesus was the archangel Michael and was a created being. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was the first and mightiest spirit, son of God, and the brother of all other spirits who would eventually become humans on earth. Today, various New Age gurus espouse Jesus as a great teacher, but certainly not divine and not one who really saves. Many today claim that Jesus was a subversive sage. He was just a witty teacher like Buddha or Socrates. In Islam, Jesus is viewed as a prophet inferior to Muhammad. Liberal teachers today will tell you that Jesus was a good example, he was a good ethical teacher, but they deny his deity and they deny his miracles. In fact, we were just at the beach a couple of weeks ago and I overheard a conversation from a lady who was taking a class online in which the class was entitled, How Jesus Became God. And she was talking about how, uh, just raving about this class, I wanted to yell over the Nicene Creed to her that uh, he's very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. He did not become God, he is God. And then there's the Jesus of pop culture. He's on t-shirts, Jesus is my homeboy. He appears on The Simpsons, on South Park. In the movie Major League, he's there to help you hit a curveball. On Talladega Nights, they're praying to the little baby Jesus, right? You could buy Jesus action figures today, Jesus bobblehead dolls. You can dress up as Jesus for Halloween. Even he appears sometimes on sports talk radio. I heard a guy the other day on sports talk radio say, not even Jesus Christ was perfect. Well, my friends, getting Jesus right 
to state the obvious matters. You get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. And why is it so important for us to get Jesus right? Well, Jesus himself said this, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Because there is no spiritual life outside of Jesus Christ. Whoever has the Son, John says, has life. And whoever doesn't have the Son does not have life. And Paul, you see here, is like a lion trying to defend this young church because this is a first-tier issue. This is not, you know, what about dinosaurs or did Adam have a belly button or, uh, you know, various debates we might have about the end times or even the first times. This is central. This is essential. This is the big E on the I chart. We have to agree on Jesus. And he is very disturbed because these false teachers, whom he sarcastically calls super apostles, have swept into the church and they're preaching another Jesus. And you see later in the, uh, later in the chapter, Paul talks about how this has created great anxiety for him. When he says, who is weak that I am not weak, and who is, made, who is led astray that, I'm, that I am not indignant? You see, it's sort of a holy zeal here from the Apostle Paul, having spent three chapters, or two chapters rather, on gospel-motivated generosity. He now is, he's pivoted, and he is in defense, defending the gospel, defending himself as a real apostle against the super apostles, and ultimately defending the church that he loves. Now, there's no consensus among the scholars as to the identity of these false teachers. We can only pick up bits and pieces throughout the letter, but it's clearly the fact that they were emphasizing more of a health, wealth, power message with a lot of ecstatic experiences. They seem to have magnified the power of Jesus at the expense of his weakness, at the expense of his crucifixion and that the Holy Spirit was more of a wonder worker than one who's bearing out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I, I get this from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, when Paul mentions the cross when he says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you we will live with him by the power of God. That's a big theme in this book if you're not familiar with 2 Corinthians, strength through weakness or power through weakness. And these super apostles like the show. They liked power encounters. Uh, they liked prosperity. And any sign of suffering or weakness was put away. But for Paul, the cross was central to the gospel. He said earlier in his first letter, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's why all the tough talk here in this part of the letter. This is a big deal. Paul has great concern for this church. And you should bear in mind as we look at it today, what he says in chapter 12, verse 19, everything that Paul says, he says has been for their upbuilding. This is for the good of the church and it is good for us, what he says here. Now it's a bit strange, stylistically, how Paul talks in these next couple of chapters. Some call this a discourse of fools because there's a lot of irony and sarcasm, kind of mock humility, wordplay, rhetorical comparison. Paul is, he thinks describing his apostolic credentials is foolish, but he thinks it's necessary for the sake of the church. If he does not defend himself, he might lose the church to greater fools. 
And so he kind of fights fire with fire. They were known for braggadocious speech, displaying who they are, talking about their credentials, the letters of recommendation that they've had. Paul doesn't want to play that game, but he has to do it a little bit. But he, there's, a, there's a twist in that what Paul eventually boasts in is his weakness, not in his accolades, not in the letters he's written or the, book, or the churches he's planted, but in his weakness. All right, that's enough introduction. What I want you to see here is Paul contrasting himself with the false teachers. And I want you to notice here some marks of true ministers. Now, we know that Paul is an apostle, so there's not a one-to-one correlation to us, but I think this would be true of anyone who seeks to carry on the apostolic tradition of proclaiming the gospel in our day and time. These are true marks of of all of us who wish to be Jesus' witnesses. Number one, true ministers have a Christ-centered objective. He says in verse one, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. He's kind of setting the tone for the way he's about to talk. It's not the typical way that Paul talks, which is chapter 10, verse one, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's now, now kind of playing their game, and he's going to, to talk in a, a unique way. And he says, I want you to bear with me. The reality is he was bearing with them, but he's setting them up as he uh, thinks that it's, it's really foolish to try to commend himself. After all, he's just said that let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And real commendation is the one that is commended by Christ. Nevertheless, he says, do bear with me. Then he uses very strong language to describe how he feels about the Corinthian believers. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see this divine jealousy that is a holy indignation, the love a husband has for his bride. This is the kind of love that Christ has today, church, for his church. He does not want us to give our hearts to another. And Paul here, as the representative of Christ, feels a jealousy for the Corinthians. The same passionate jealousy we read about in the Old Testament when God's covenant love was displayed. He had a holy jealousy for them, and he had a particular purpose, Paul says, and that is to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. To present them, that is an eschatological idea, at the end of all times, to present this church devoted to Jesus and pure before Jesus. He draws great attention to Jesus here, doesn't he? That's his aim, that's his objective, to present them to Christ as pure. Now, among the Jews, marriage was in two separate ceremonies. You had the betrothal, and then you had the nuptial ceremony, which consummated the marriage. And usually there was a year between the two. And the betrothal commitment was considered a binding commitment. And it was the father's job in that year to protect the the bride-to-be and to protect her purity. And Paul here is acting as the spiritual father for the Corinthians. In fact, he calls himself that elsewhere. And he wants them to not give their hearts to another, to stay faithful to the groom, Jesus Christ. But there's a problem, verse 3. The, the opponent behind this objective is Satan. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Can you see this, this Christ-centered objective that Paul has? He wants the church to be devoted to Jesus, to have a singular Uh, affection for Jesus, but Satan is at work. 
You might want to circle the word thoughts there. This is uh, how Satan often operates. This word is only used six times in the New Testament, this Greek word, and five of the six are in 2 Corinthians. Paul has described it already as the designs of Satan, chapter 2, verse 11, that's the same word, or the blinding of the mind, chapter 3, verse 14, and chapter 4, verse 4, and taking every thought captive. That word thought is the same word. Now, Satan can work many ways, but one of the primary ways he assaults the church and God's people is in the realm of their thinking. He leads them away from pure devotion to Christ, often through their mind. That's why it's so important for Christians to guard their minds, to fill it with gospel truth, to read the scriptures, to think on praiseworthy things. Satan wants your mind. He wants your thoughts. He wants to lead them astray. And Paul says, I'm very frustrated about this. He says, it's just like back in the garden. Satan makes something look good. For Eve, it was the forbidden fruit. For the Corinthians, it's these flashy speakers, these flashy apostles. And he says, I don't want you to be betrayed. I don't want you to betray your ultimate lover, the Christ who gave himself for you. I think there are many applications for these three verses. Just four real quick. One, I think there is gospel application here. See the reality of our faith, church. We have an already not yet faith, and this is really borne out in this text. We are betrothed, that is, we are united to Jesus, but we're waiting on the consummation of that day. We're waiting on the ultimate marriage supper of the Lamb when Christ returns. And so we give our hearts to him, the one that we're looking forward to seeing. I think there's also here a word to the community because what Paul is saying here and what Paul is doing is what we should be doing for one another. We want to protect our brothers and sisters. We want to maintain the purity of our brothers and sisters. We want to ensure that if anyone is drifting away, that we plead with them with a divine jealousy. Don't do it. Don't give your heart to another. And I think there's a word for mission here. Why is it that we're sending missionaries all over the world? Why do we talk about church planting? Because people need to hear of this Christ and be united to him, to fall in love with him, to adore him. But the strongest application I think here is what we've already talked about, and that is beware of the danger of being led astray by something that's enticing, particularly to your mind, to your thoughts. Sometimes this may happen through false teachers, but you know where I've seen it the most, and probably you would say amen, is through relationships that are unhealthy. It's not a guy who's claiming to be a pastor, but someone who is taking one away, say a female, from pure devotion to Christ, gets emotionally engaged in a relationship that is not godly, not healthy, and is led astray. Sometimes it's the slow drift, and that's what you have to be aware of, of, of just slowly allowing your mind to wander or to engage in that which you should not engage with, and over a period of time, you slip slide away. And so see here, Satan is at work. Paul has mentioned Satan multiple times to this church. And Paul says, I want you to, to not fall away from a pure devotion to Jesus Christ. May God help us in that. 
Secondly, true ministers proclaim the authentic gospel. Verses 4 to 6, Paul drills down more on the teacher's heresy when he says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit than the one we received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, why are you tolerating a false gospel? They're proclaiming, he says, another Jesus. They didn't have a Jesus that suffered, a Jesus that was crucified, emphasizing probably just his power and his glory, but denying his brutal death with that, the atonement, the need for atonement. They did not preach Christ and him crucified. Now today, we have all sorts of different Jesuses, don't we? We have the therapist Jesus, who affirms you and tells you not to be too hard on yourself. Open-minded Jesus, who says just love everyone everywhere, especially if they recycle. <laughs> right? We have moralistic Jesus, who keeps wanting to add to the gospel and is upset if a Christian has any joy. Friendship Jesus, where only a relationship is emphasized, but there's no talk of sin or Christ's lordship. There's home run Jesus. He helps athletes run faster than the non-Christians. Helps them win Super Bowls and World Series. There's white Jesus who looks like a German, blonde hair, a little halo over his head. There's life coach Jesus that gives you practical skills to improve your business. There's spirituality Jesus that says you really don't need organized church, just go out in creation. Revolutionary Jesus who teaches you to rebel against the man and the system. Or guru Jesus who tells you to feel more than you think. Prosperity Jesus, probably the most popular in today's climate. Tells you to name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. The positive thinking Jesus that tells you to slay all your giants and turn your lemon into lemonade. Paul says, when I showed up, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I deliver to you, 1 Corinthians 15, what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures, right? We need to know the real Jesus. Now, you don't have to know all the counterfeits. What you just need to know is the real one. And that's how you spot the counterfeit ones. And it's usually half-truths or some truths contained in what's said about other Jesuses but it's not the biblical Jesus. And Paul says, don't put up with it or this different spirit than the one you have received. Again, this was probably an emphasis on power and was played out in the false teacher's way by being overbearing, authoritarian. John tells us we always have to test the spirits. Paul has taught us about the spirit. Spirit works regeneration in our lives, transformation in our lives, gives us assurance it's a guarantee of what's to come. He produces Christ-like character in us. Everything that Paul was teaching about the Spirit was apparently denied or most of it rejected. Or he says, don't accept another gospel either than the one we preached. They preach another gospel because they preach another Christ. And Paul's not cool with that, and neither should we be. You know, Paul was okay in Philippians when guys were preaching the real Christ but had a bad motive. He wasn't okay when the Galatians were putting up with a wrong Christ, a wrong gospel. 
He said, if another angel comes to you and preaches another gospel, let him be anathema, accursed, because this is absolutely central. It's no small error to disbelieve the gospel. It is the error. It's Bill Buckner letting the ball go between his legs and losing the World Series. You don't want this to go between your legs. You need the real gospel or you don't have life. You miss this, you miss God. You miss this, you miss heaven. So there are many distortions of it, and you have to be discerning. You see, that's what the Corinthians needed, and that's what we desperately need today in this age of sloppy agape, when people aren't discerning, right? They don't have theological clarity. So people assume, I mean, tons of people assume, if I am a morally good person, I'm good. But if morality could save us, Jesus would not have to die on the cross. We need something greater than morality. We actually need perfect righteousness. And how are we doing at that? Right? We need Jesus' righteousness. And that's the good news of the gospel. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Morality's fine. It'll keep you out of jail, but not hell. Or people who assume if I attend church, I'm good. And that's a, that's a big danger. As I said before, sticking my head in an oven doesn't make me a biscuit. And sticking my head in this building doesn't make me a Christian. I need something more than that. Or you assume, I have friends who are Christians. Jesus spent three years with Judas. You can spend time with believers, but that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Or that your family's a Christian. You must be born again. The false teachers proclaim a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, and this is a huge deal. And Paul says, you put up with it readily enough. And so just beware, church, just because someone says gospel or the name Jesus or says spirit, that doesn't mean we're on the same team. Now, Paul shifts in verse 5 to his own defense. He says, indeed, if I consider that I am not at least inferior to these super apostles. That was the charge that was being made. Paul's inferior to these guys. And then he says something that's unique about his own ministry and his own method. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you. In other words, these, these super apostles were great public orators. And I don't mean just a, a clear, smooth speaker. This was entertainment in Corinth. And in Corinth, you can read about the ancient sources, the audience was sovereign. And your whole goal, like a marketing team, was to persuade a group of people about something. And they would roll into town and they could impress people. You would just give them a topic like butterflies and they would make you cry and laugh and wow you. And Paul says, I don't have any of that. Now, I don't take this to mean that Paul was a boring speaker. I don't think we should draw that, nor that we shouldn't attempt to be an engaging speaker. It's just for Paul, the audience wasn't sovereign. The message was. And his plan was not to wow people, but to preach the gospel. And he says, to the Jews, what I preach is a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, it's foolish. It is the message that he says, I have mastered. I'm not so skilled in speaking, but I do have the knowledge of the gospel. And that's very important. What we proclaim is more important than how well we proclaim it. We are not the only religion to have missionaries. 
What makes us distinct is what we proclaim. And so we deploy people with the real gospel. And Paul says, you know, I'm not the greatest communicator perhaps, but I can proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a good encouragement to you and me. God can mediate his truth through all kinds of communicators. And that should give us all hope and encouragement. All right, number three. Let's press on quickly as the kids are are having a good time here. True ministers are marked by integrity, humility, and love. Paul has to deal with a very strange objection in this paragraph. Let me just try to summarize it. When he goes to Corinth, he doesn't accept any money. And you would think, well, that's fantastic. Maybe he can come over to my house. Spread some pine straw. Does he work that cheap? But it's a strange criticism. And he says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you may be exalted because I preach the gospel to you free of charge? They actually thought it was a sin for Paul to not receive compensation. You say, how so? Well, again, we're, we're really overhearing a conversation that sometimes in this letter we don't know precisely some of the issues. But it seems based on chapter 12, verse 16, one of the charges was that he was being deceptive that Paul wasn't receiving money because he had some motive. And he says, down in verses 8 to 11, he received compensation from the Macedonians, that the churches in the north, but not there in Corinth. And there was a spin narrative that was at work on Paul. And in this honor and shame culture, you can see how the Corinthians might have been led to say, he really doesn't love us because he's embarrassing us. He's shaming us. He takes money from those churches. He doesn't take money from us. Not only that, one of the problems they had with Paul was that he did manual labor. In Corinth, we know that Paul lived with Priscilla and Aquila, and he made tents. He was a tradesman, and he would often preach late at night, and he would work during the day. And among the the philosophers and the itinerant teachers, this was the least acceptable way in their mind to provide for your necessities. But Paul says, it was an act of humility and it was an act of love in that I didn't want to burden you. And so I I received support and I made the tents and that's because I care about you. Verse 11, does this mean I don't love you? He says, God knows I do. Which by the way, is just a side note, a wonderful thing to be able to say sometimes when you can't convince people of something. God knows. God knows I love you guys. (laughs) I may not be able to convince you with this letter, but God knows I do. Now, why is it that Paul didn't receive support from Corinth? I think three reasons. Number one, there's a difference in the way Paul planted churches and what Paul taught about pastoring established churches. So in Macedonia, those churches were already established. But in Corinth, it's really hard to plant a church, preach to people, and then ask for money. Right? (laughs) But Macedonia, these are established, even though they didn't have a lot of money, but they were still willing to support Paul. Paul would say to elders of local churches, 1 Timothy 5, that those who labor in preaching and teaching should be considered worthy of double honor. That is, they should be compensated. But so, so there's a difference in Paul, what he was, had done in Corinth, because this was new church work, and that's why we support church planters. And that's, that's why they get support from other churches. It's the same kind of principle, I think. But I think there's more than that. Paul probably liked the independence of not feeling constrained as if he was answering to 
those churches that he was just establishing. Often strings are attached with dollars, and Paul wanted the, the liberty. Things get complicated when money's involved. And I think perhaps even more than those two reasons is Paul is trying to distance himself from the false teachers who were all about money. Later he says here in verse 12, he wanted to undermine their claim that they worked on the same terms as Paul. This is one of the ways they didn't work on the same terms as Paul. So that's, that's Paul trying again to defend his integrity, which is an awkward thing to do, but that his manual labor was a sign of humility. Everything he was doing, he says in verse 10, he's not embarrassed by. He's, that's integrity. Other churches can know his practices, and he's marked by love. He wanted to just labor among this church. He planted this church. He worked hours in a, in a trade all of it because of, of love for this congregation. Finally, number four, true ministers warn about the dangers of false teaching. You see how Paul operates in verse 12, and what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Paul knows that the false apostles are self-serving, manipulative, and driven by money, like the pastors today trying to raise $60 million for their own private jet. I don't think I'll be doing that, church, in case you're wondering. If I do, just kick me out of here, will you? Uh, on a donkey. Um, but you see how the false apostles operate in verse 13? Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles. They're, they're masking themselves. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. They're false apostles. This Paul uses an interesting word here. Pseudo apostoli. False apostles. That is false sent ones. But Jesus didn't send them. And yet they're claiming to be sent ones. When you get out into the wider world of, of mission, uh, things done in the name of the church, you see this a lot, where some individuals are not even converted and yet God will speak a word to someone to tell them that they should go plant a church and start some kind of movement. And they're not even a Christian yet. And they're sent, and they do great damage. It's very similar to what's going on here. They were pseudo-apostles, pseudo-sent ones. They're deceitful workmen. That is, they're doing their work with cunning. They're, they're, there's, they, they have an agenda, and they're disguising themselves as an angel of light. And in all of this, Paul says, they're following the way of their master. It's very strong language, isn't it? Satan disguises himself. So no false apostle shows up and says, hug me, I'm a false apostle. Doesn't have that on the t-shirt, you know? No, we read that false teachers are like wolves that creep in. Jude says people crept in unnoticed. It's not like uh, you guys saw this week, apparently there was a bear in North Hills. And, and uh, yeah, beware, beware, I'm just trying to help. Uh, and, and the person said, the bear came up on our deck, sniffed around doing bear things, you know? <laughs> well, you can spot a bear. I hope you can spot a bear. But he's saying the false teachers are hard to spot because they're disguising themselves. Things look good, things sound good. And the church needed discernment. This is what Jesus commended the Ephesian church for in Revelation 2. 
He says, you do not tolerate wicked men, those tested who call themselves apostles but are not. You found them to be false. And he says, good job. But you know what else he says to that church? It's a good word for us. They had discernment, but he says, I have this problem. You've lost your love. You see, we've got to have both. We are a doctrine church. We are a Bible church. But we need to, to make sure that our hearts are warm toward Christ, warm toward each other. The Corinthians here, though, lost discernment. Not all that glitters is gold. Not every watch that says Rolex is a Rolex. It's a Folex. I've got some of those $10 Folkleys as well. Perhaps you have some of those. There are a lot of, a lot of fake gospels. What does Paul say about it? Verse 15, final verse. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Listen to this last sentence. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The delay of justice doesn't mean the absence of justice. God will not be mocked. One day, Jesus Christ will have the last word. And for believers today, this is a word of great comfort to us. But to the false teachers, this is a terrifying warning. You follow Satan's ways, you share Satan's fate. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So church, let us keep our eyes on the Jesus of Holy Scripture. We don't need another Jesus. We've got the real Jesus. And praise God, he's made himself known to us. The Savior who alone saves and satisfies. The one who is coming again in power and glory. And we will see him. Let's remain faithful to him and let's not give our hearts to another. For soon we will join the company of Revelation 19, singing hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray you would guard us from any kind of heresy that would get our eyes off Jesus. Guard us from any kind of thinking. Guard our thoughts that we may have pure devotion to the one who loved us, gave himself for us. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for making your truth known to us, for bringing us from death to life. Make us faithful in this day and age in which we live, in which everything is exalted, it seems, except the real gospel. We want to be your faithful ambassadors in this world. We bless you. Lord Jesus, now as we prepare our hearts for the table, we look forward to this marriage supper, the day in which we'll take it anew with our King. And so we praise you. We pray you be honored in the remainder of our time together in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen.